0: Right, good morning all. Um, uh, this week we're looking at Britain and uh, the decision to leave the European Union, uh, still reverberating um, around Britain, Europe and other parts of the world, although it happened back in 2016, the decision that is, the vote, the referendum. What I'm interested in today, um, we have three questions. Why did Britain vote to leave? Why did many in the Labor Party formally opposed the European Union, the British Labour Party, but now mostly support it? And why do many on the right of British politics now oppose British membership of the European Union? To answer these, I'm going to focus in the lecture on a few things. I think it's particularly important to focus on the demographics of the places in which people voted differently from their normal party political allegiance. So, one of the striking things for me um, and others was that many conservative seats in the south of England, seats held by the Conservative Party uh, at the preceding and subsequent general elections voted to remain in the EU. Some Labor seats in the north of England voted to leave. Indeed, for me, the crucial fact in explaining why the vote gained a majority is that many working-class voters, Labor voters by tradition in the north of England... I'm going to put up a map and point to some of these places so you can recognise them. In the north of England, like Sunderland and Sheffield in Yorkshire, uh, which is this red patch here. Red means Labour voting at the election prior to the uh, 2016 referendum. This area is London. Now, these are not to scale, so obviously there's, there's many more electorates in London that appears on that map, and there's not... The the massive sea of blue through southern England uh, is counterbalanced by the fact that both London and northern cities like Manchester have many Labour seats. This is just an, an impression this can give you. The important point I want to highlight here is that these red areas in the 2015 election aren't always gold here. Gold means voting to remain, gold or yellow. Uh, voting to remain in this one. You can see there's more blue here than there is here. Or there. Now where are those places? So we're talking about Sunderland and Sheffield in York here. Birmingham further down. Durham and Hartlepool further north. And then South Wales is another one. Now South Wales is a very traditionally Labor working-class area, voting Labor, but we go over to the equivalent spot for South Wales here and we see it wasn't so solidly voting to stay in the European Union. That was a big thing. And I think it's the product of particular factors. It was preventable. If you believe that Britain should have stayed in the European Union, it was preventable. Its causes lie in the fact, I think, if we go through the history that led up to the referendum, although the right of politics, and I'll go away from the map now and come back to the word document we'll return to the map later. Although it was the right of politics, that is the Conservative Party and further to the right, groups like the UK Independence Party, uh, which drove the opposition to British membership of the European Union, that demanded a referendum from Prime Minister David Cameron, and they did so, in my opinion, to... They argued that Britain needed to better express and preserve its distinctive culture and to better advance its economic interests as they perceived them. Culture and economic. We'll come back to those. And one of the things we might want to talk about in the seminar part is which was more important, the cultural or the economic factors. But although that that push to leave Europe came from the right, it was the failings of the Labour Party and the Labour movement, which includes trade unions in my opinion, which enabled that opposition to then gain majority support. So what went wrong with the British Labour Party? Why could it not convince its own voters to remain to vote to remain in the EU, many of its voters, particularly in those northern England, South Wales, Heartlands? I think this is because the referendum opened up opportunities for people to lash out and protest about a range of things. They weren't just voting on whether to remain in or leave the European Union. Here's a referendum. We don't get these opportunities very often. A referendum is a chance for all the people in Britain, whoever wants to turn out to vote, to, to make a statement. It's different from our system of parliamentary democracy generally, where we elect our parliamentarians, they make the decisions, they're our representatives, and then we vote them in or out. A direct vote. And what were they lashing out against? Well, I think they were lashing out against decades of change... Which may or may not have been caused by the European Union. And some of those changes particularly affected the north of England, South Wales, and they were changes from the Thatcher Conservative government of, from 1979 to 1990 and subsequent Conservative governments, but they are also changes from Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's so-called New Labor governments from 1997 to 2010. Neoliberalisation economically of modern Labor parties, left-of-centre parties, in my opinion, has fractured the the coalition that used to exist between working-class voters who voted Labor because they felt that was in their economic interest and progressive, social, middle-class people who voted Labor or left-of-centre because they felt strongly about issues. And when you have economic insecurity, uh, job loss high unemployment in regions, sense of despair and so on. This makes it harder to get support for more compassionate, outward-looking social policies. And to overcome <clears throat> these problems, political leadership is very important. And although Tony Blair is seen, was seen as a very effective leader, he won several elections, he was, he was quite popular. I mean, his government will be remembered most for taking Britain into a war in Iraq. That's, that became his big passion. So he was elected talking about education and economic restoration, but instead he followed George W. Bush into a war in Iraq uh, which many European countries did not support, a $3 trillion war that cost many lives, including young British people's lives, and turned out to have have been done on, on a false pretext. There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Perhaps Tony Blair and later Labor leaders could have spent more time tackling prejudice in their own country against asylum seekers and immigrants. Now this fellow, Nigel Farage, grinning like a bit of a cheshire cat I think there, um, I've tried not to deliberately pick unflattering photos, but that's him, the Jaguar driving smoker of small cigars who led the United Kingdom Independence Party and was one of the major forces um, behind Brexit. You have to give him credit politically. He's a bit—he's a friend of Donald Trump's, uh, and they were similar. They were both people who p- portrayed themselves as outsiders on the side of the disaffected, the, the, the downtrodden, but in fact were quite wealthy right-wing conservative people. But they were able to do it perhaps because leaders on the other side couldn't combat them effectively. We talked last week about Angela Merkel as being a, a very successful leader. I don't think we have someone quite of her calibre in Britain, on either side of politics at the moment. Um, now, what happened after Blair left office? Well, something very interesting happened. Blair and Gordon Brown took the Labor Party to the right in government. After they lost office, the Labor Party then suddenly swung to the left. They elected a very old-fashioned left-wing leader, Jeremy Corbyn, here. Um, and interestingly enough, Jeremy Corbyn came from the tradition, the time in Labour's history when the Labour Party actually opposed being in the European Union for reasons we'll explain shortly. He was Eurosceptic from a left-wing point of view rather than a right-wing point of view. His personal opposition to Europe, he he, he didn't say he actually supported Brexit, but he didn't campaign effectively for Labour to oppose Brexit. I'm sure he cast his own personal ballot. We can't prove it because it's a secret ballot. I'm sure he cast his own personal ballot, ballot to leave because he comes from... A tradition of euro Euroscepticism, which goes back to the post-Second World War period when the Labor Party left of centre elements in Britain, the trade unions, felt they didn't need to be in Europe because they could do it, they could achieve their policy goals by themselves. They were very triumphant after World War II. A Labor government was elected in 1945, despite the fact that Winston Churchill had led Britain through the war successfully. He did so incidentally in coalition with Labor, Clem Attlee was a Deputy Prime Minister, Uh, Straight after the war, uh, the British people elected a Labour government. Winston Churchill was turfed from office, and the Attlee Labour government came in in 1945, was re-elected five years later, or yes, whenever, and brought in the National Health Service uh, and expanded welfare, nationalised iron, coal and steel and so on. They were very confident in those years, and they felt they didn't need to be part of any European confederation. So the left-wing Euro scepticism was there in the earlier decades. But I think, and that's why I've said here, I believe it was outdated by the 1980s because then uh, things had changed. The EU had moved to the left and Britain had moved to the right. So many on the left wanted to be part of Europe by the 1980s. But Jeremy Corbyn couldn't change. He was too old to change. Some would say that the fact that the EU has taken these policies on imposing or austerity on Greece uh, mean that it is undesirable to be in the European Union, that it's a neoliberal place. But I think it's, it's more complex than that. It's more contested and that social democrats need to be in the space to put their own views rather than out of the space. Jeremy Corbyn was compared for a while to Bernie Sanders. This is when Bernie Sanders first ran, ran for president. The democratic primaries polled very strongly, didn't beat Hillary Clinton for the nomination, but polled strongly. Both of us say, well, people were trying to explain, why is it that suddenly politics has become really polarised again? You've got two left-wing figures in Britain and America, um, old men too, actually, both of them. Why are they so appealing? And I think the reason was often given was that people were looking for people who were passionate about policy. They were sick of compromise, pragmatism, and so on. And these people appeal. But I don't think, personally, I don't think Corbyn was as effective as Bernie Sanders. And I think his deficiencies... Um, were damaging for the British Labor Party. Blair took the Labor Party in Britain too far to the right, in my opinion. Corbyn then let it sink into an unpromising far-left rut. And I think Britain is looking for an effective progressive social democratic leader in order to combat Boris Johnson, who who we'll see a picture of shortly. Another figure in this, um, there's lots of Tonys here. There's Tony Benn, Tony Blair and Tony Yut. Um, uh, Tony Benn was a long-standing left-wing... British Labour Party person, who, who expounded you know, pretty, pretty Im- impressive principled reasons why he never supported joining the European Union, because he said he was elected to the House of Commons in Westminster, and he could not hand away the powers that the people of his electorate Chesterfield had given him, to uh, uh, a substantially unelected body. There is a European Parliament, but this is the criticism that the European Union is too top-down driven, and No European Parliament for the British people can ever have the same status or mystique or meaning as the House of Commons of Westminster, the mother of Parliament, it's been called. One of the world's greatest tourist attractions. Big Ben, the bell in the tower and so on. So, Tony Benn, Jeremy Corbyn, elements on the left who opposed the European Union, never wanted to be part of it. And yet, as we suggested, by the 1980s, Many, including the Trades Union Congress, strongly supported membership of the European Union because Margaret Thatcher's right-wing Conservative Party government had smashed the coal miners' union, smashed the print unions to help Rupert Murdoch's newspaper move out of Fleet Street and into a new centre in Wapping. Here she is, Margaret Thatcher. I'm not a fan, but you're know, you all entitled to your own opinions. I, I do note, as a matter of historical fact, that when she died, and many consider this in poor taste, but the BBC top song by People's Choice that the British people voted for suddenly became Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. Um, and many people said that was outrageous. All these horrible left-wing trolls, or whatever you want to call them, were voting against this fine stateswoman. Uh, but there was a lot of polarisation in the Thatcher years. And the polarisation led to a debate where Margaret Thatcher preceded many of the Conservative Party figures of today... Boris Johnson had some similarities with Nigel Farage. She didn't actually try to take Britain out of the European Union but she was appalled by the European Union's move to the left which was perhaps exemplified when the European Union set up a social chapter of its constitutional arrangements. So it asked all its member nations to ratify the social chapter the Maastricht Treaty it was called. Maastricht just happens to be the name of a little town in the Netherlands where the treaty was signed. This was giving pro worker protections, minimum wages and protections for trade unions. The sort of arrangements that exist in Germany, the Nordic countries, and many Europe continental European countries. But if Britain adopted them, um, people like Thatcher were not happy. They said this is this is you know European socialists, bastards from Brussels telling us how to run our economy, we don't want it. No thank you very much. There is no alternative. The lady's not for turning, as she said in one of her speeches. So on the one hand you have the right getting increasingly annoyed um, by the European Union by the 1990s. On the other hand, you have a left getting increasingly interested in it for the same reasons. When we look back at the post-Second World War years, the Attlee government, as you at rights, this was a confident and proud moment. The Labour Party in Britain had risen up slowly, gradually. Trade unions had, had uh, become stronger there was a strong working-class movement. Communities in cities like Manchester, socialist organisations, democratic socialist organisations, the Labour Party, the union movement, the cooperative society, also non-political aspects of working-class life that Eric Hobsbawm writes about. Football, or we call it soccer, as a mass proletarian sport. Blackpool, a seaside resort in north of England where workers could go for leisure time that they now had some more of because of the what trade unions have had achieved. Part of the culture was going to the local fish and ship shop, uh, wearing a cloth cap, as many working-class men did, living in council flats or houses, not high-rise flats, but publicly provided houses, which was another thing that the Attlee government did, going to the picture palace and so on. And Britain was proud because Britain won the war. Britain led from start to finish and, and, and beat the war, and they felt no need then to compromise uh, or to uh, be part of the European Confederation. They felt triumphant. France, on the other hand, had been humiliated because its its government capitulated to the Nazis quickly. Uh, and you rights to this effect. And the Labour government talked about making a land fit for heroes. So the soldiers would come home from the war, having won the war, and the slogan, the British Labour Party, the poster, you can find it online, is a big V sign, V for victory, and the slogan is, and now win the peace. So we've won the war, now we're going to win the peace. We're going to make a land fit for heroes, we're going to make a more socially democratic, some of them referred to it as a new Jerusalem, to build a new Jerusalem in Britain. Referencing William Blake's famous poem Which has been put to music I will not sleep I will not cease from mental fight Nor shall my sword sleep in my hand Till we have built Jerusalem In England's green and pleasant land Idealism In that poem he also refers to The dark satanic mills of the industrial revolution So it's an anti-exploitation poem So that was the mood in the 40s and the 50s. But then by the 70s, it had all changed. Confidence had evaporated. It was a different world. And one of the big changes, of course, was that Britain was no longer such a world power. One of the other things the Attlee government did was to grant independence to India, which was Britain's largest nation in its empire that became a commonwealth. Churchill opposed that, because he said that Britain will lose its status as a world power. Mahatma Gandhi led the campaign for independence for India. I think it was the right thing to do. But Britain suddenly went, well not suddenly, but gradually went from being feeling a, a world power to being a somewhat diminished nation with economic problems. And by the 1970s, uh, Britain entered the European community. And it was led into that community by conservative prime minister, Edward Heath. He was very pro-European. He was very different from Margaret Thatcher. He he, was—he's as different from Margaret Thatcher as Malcolm Turnbull is from Tony Abbott, if you like. A small L liberal, a small C conservative, not a a hardline market liberal and social conservative. So he led the the Britain into Europe. And although many in British Labor opposed it, the leader of the British Labour Party at the time, Harold Wilson, who became Prime Minister again in 1974, he'd already been Prime Minister from 1964 to 1970, then Heath from 70 to 74, Wilson back in 74. So both the Prime Minister, both the Conservative Prime Minister and the Labor opposition leader supported European membership. And there you have a two to one vote. 17 million people in Britain voted to enter, 8 million voted not to. A clear majority even though elements of British Labour opposed it. What Yut writes um, very, very presciently is that despite the bipartisan support of Edward H- Harold Wilson and Edward Heath, um, although Britain voted to go in to the European community, that didn't necessarily make them feel fully European. And I've put in italics, and the English especially. Was con- there was doubt, there was ambivalence about this. And Yutt wrote that back in 2005. So in in a sense, he's talking about what became Brexit back then, you know, early on. Britain then changed under Thatcher. And Yutt emphasises this, that the kind of things that happened in Britain under Thatcher's government didn't happen to the same extent in the rest of Europe. In Britain, the political disciples of Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, both conservative right-of-centre economists, took over public policy, monetarism, privatization, smaller government, tax cuts for wealthy people, anti trade union activity, etc. And that didn't happen to anywhere near the same extent in Britain. It was more of an it was Britain and America seen the Thatcher and Reagan, not others' equivalents in Europe. John Major took over from Thatcher when she was eventually toppled, he kept Britain out of the social chapter of the European Union Treaty, which was trying to bring in minimum wages and trade union protection. The Iron Lady, that she was sometimes called, uh, and you would suggest that anyone who fell asleep in 1978 and woke up 20 years later in Britain would not have recognised the country. The Attlee era had receded, nationalisation had been reversed. One of the reasons that nationalisation had been reversed, because it was revealed that nationalisation of industries didn't necessarily turn them into wonderful enterprises. People had thought that if you had public ownership of coal and steel, in Australia there were attempts to have public ownership of banks, that would always be better than private ownership. But sometimes it was just the substitution of one remote hierarchical command for another. Although there's also arguments that privatisation has gone too far and that some of the things that have been privatised in Britain, Australia, America and so on should be brought back to government ownership the kind of people who most needed European Union cross-subsidies now were the people affected by thatcherite policies, like South Wales coal miners and North of England manufacturing industries. And they did benefit. And I think one of the problems is that there's not enough publicity or knowledge of the benefits that the European Union brought to those parts of Britain. It was always easier to complain when the EU did something wrong rather than to say... Uh, highlight when they did something right. Tony Blair didn't lead public opinion on Europe. Although he was Labour, he's sometimes described as Thatcher's son, not you know biologically, uh, but in the political sense. He, he'd move Labour, he called it New Labour, and in my opinion, but you're entitled to have a different view, of course, um, he, he didn't have as reformist an approach to civilising capitalism as most social democratic leaders have traditionally had. He was close to Rupert Murdoch and uh, he could have done a lot more to invest in skills training to reskill those displaced workers from coal mines and shipyards and so on, bring in the German-style vocational approach, the apprenticeship system that Will Hutton, a British person, has written about, um, that might have got better results and less inequality. Now, we've mentioned a referendum. is an unusual thing. Zadie Smith, who's best known as a novelist. Does anyone here read Sadie Smith's books? Um, She's a novelist from a um, a non-English speaking background, person of colour, who lives in England. She wrote a very good piece on the Brexit results in the New York Review of Books reference there. She wrote that A referendum can be risky because it channels a wide range of issues through a very narrow gate. It appears to be ultimate democracy, but in practice delivers a dangerously misleading reduction. A referendum turns out to be a very ineffective hammer for a thousand crooked nails. So, you got a grievance? Express it here. Miscellaneous grievances can come out in referendums. Oversimplification. And here was a chance for a country, and particularly for disenfranchised, people, disadvantaged people, who normally felt steamrolled by the economy and politics, here was a chance to uh, disrupt it, to say protest, to say I'm, I'm not happy, etc. Some would argue that uh, the, the referendum, as Matthew Wood has written, um, is a symptom of democratic crisis which requires genuine political reform in Britain and in European countries too, continental European countries. Uh, a more democratic Europe is needed, with more extensive, open and well-resourced stakeholder engagement from groups in society, incremental democratisation, bringing citizens to the table and, and making the EU relevant for them. And so the problems don't only just in Britain, but only Britain has voted to leave. Um, the problem of legitimacy of the European Parliament in the eyes of citizens. Matthew Wood's article is referenced if you want to follow it up in, in the uh, conversation, in the lecture notes. Jeremy Corbyn um, continued as Labour leader after the referendum for a while. Now, David Cameron was the British Prime Minister. We'll see a photo in a minute before we go. David Cameron is, is the one, the British Prime Minister, who agreed to hold the referendum. He act, But he wanted Britain to stay in the European Union. He agreed to hold the referendum because elements of the right, Boris Johnson, the right of his party, and Jacob Rees-Mogg kept badgering him to do it. And eventually he said, alright, you can have your bloody referendum, and he felt confident that he could defeat them at the referendum. Get them off his back, well, he made a big mistake. That's why, as soon as the Brexit vote happened, he was gone as Prime Minister. And his replacement was Theresa May. Now, I'm I'm not sure if that's taken when she's waving hello, and she's coming into number 10, or when she's waving goodbye, but that's her. Um, Now, Theresa May didn't support Brexit either. Theresa May had an electoral contest with Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson lost. And Theresa May, many in the Conservative Party were appalled at what had happened. Um, Theresa May said, all right, well, I didn't personally support Brexit, but you voted for it, so I have to deliver the best deal possible for the British people. And she was in office for quite some time. You might recall this endless negotiation with the European Union trying to get a deal. She made a very effective speech when she was became Prime Minister, which I thought appealed to those, like in the north of England, South Wales and so on, who felt disenfranchised. If you read the words of her speech, she talked about, we want to give more people control over their lives. And if you, if you didn't know it was her giving it, if you actually read the speech, it sounded very much like a left-wing manifesto of industrial democracy and participatory democracy. Um, maybe that showed that, that the superior tactics of the British Tories or Conservative Party over Labor. So there's Theresa, there was David, and soon we'll see Boris coming in. Brexit caused deep divisions uh, in the Parliament and the British Conservative Party. Labor was also divided. Many in the Labor Party were torn. They felt that they, although the people had by a, a majority voted to leave that perhaps there should be a second referendum with more detail. What does it really mean? There was evidence, for example, that Google indicated that the biggest... The day after the referendum, the, 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 the words that were searched in Google in Britain, but by far more than anything else, was were European Union. So all of a sudden, people in a country that just voted to leave the European Union were suddenly trying to find out what it was. Was this a signal that perhaps they hadn't realised what was was happening? Um, But then that's not a very democratic approach to say the people have voted, but you got it wrong, so you're going to have to vote again, is it? It's it's a dilemma. How did they make Brexit happen? Well, let's go back to some of those demographic factors. Um, Xenophobia, racism perhaps, concern about immigrants many talked about how pro-European London elites were deeply out of touch with the so-called mass of British citizens. Let's bring back the the, um, the map. And you'll see that there's a very big gold swathe in the London area. Um, so this gold or, is remain. It's very strong around London. Um... It's also incredibly... I mean, Scotland voted to stay. And Scotland, many parts of Scotland, like Glasgow, for example, are rather socioeconomically similar to these parts of Northern England that voted uh, to leave, that normally vote Labor. So the Scottish situation is different, and we'll come to that. So London, this gold swathe here, was seen as a bunch of elite cosmopolitan people who didn't understand the hardships, the realities of life uh, of people in other regions who um, had been affected by shrinking wages, poor access to social housing, and who were in many cases resentful of immigrants and found them an outlet to blame, a target. Immigration is an issue very difficult to separate from economic grievance for voters in places like the north of England where reaction against immigrants uh, is a symptom of economic despair. One of the things we'll talk about in the lecture, sorry, the seminar is, is it excusable for people feeling economic despair to look for scapegoats like immigrants? Is that understandable? And when does it become, if so, when does it become inexcusable? If it does. Arguably, voters would have responded differently. Fears of immigration would have been less electorally salient if political leaders had offered them more hopeful and real policies for job creation and infrastructure improvement. If fairer wages, the implementation of EU social policy directives, including work-life balance, uh, had been enacted, then perhaps local workers would have felt less threatened by foreign workers. And the difference in the map, um, in the map of the geography, was encapsulated by someone who wrote an article saying the problem with the referendum there was too much Hampstead and not enough Hull. Hampstead is a is a wealthy, socially progressive part of this London swathe. It's a North London suburb. It votes Labour, but it's it's a bit like the way, the Mel- the electorate of Melbourne votes Green. It's socially progressive, but, it, but it's quite well off. Now. Some refer to this the difference between Hampstead and Hull. Now, where is Hull? Hull is here. Hull is a former shipping, sorry, a former fishing and port town in the north of England, and Hampstead is down here in the very fashionable red belt. Normally, both those places vote Labour, but Hampstead voted Remain, and Hull voted to leave. So, what's the difference? All right, cosmopolitans versus cosmopolitan elites versus ordinary people struggling, wealthy versus less well-off. Some refer to it as a divide between the wine drinkers of Hampstead and the beer drinkers of Hull. The cosmopolitans of Hampstead and the left behind people in Hull. The organic food buyers of Hampstead and the home brand food buyers of Hull. They're things we can talk about. Fishing in Hull was another industry that had recently declined and some of its older residents blamed the EU for that, accurately or otherwise. And People in a place like Hull didn't respond terribly well when people turned up from Hampstead or similar places saying, if you don't vote for Britain to stay in the European Union, it's the end of the world and it's the end of the British economy. And some people in Hull were more likely to say to them, well, as far as I'm concerned, we're already at that point, thank you. It's not going too well. So don't try and tell me things are going to get get bad if we leave because they're not going well now. Uh, So, Labour's coalition of socially concerned... Uh, middle class voters and ethnic and cultural minorities is not united on economic policy issues and is split on questions of identity. Um, a reference there is to an article by Stephen Bush in the New Statesman uh, about Britain's new culture war and its links to Brexit. Therefore I argue Britain needs a more representative Labour Party which can stick back together the coalition by dealing with economic policy questions Uh, which are important to working-class communities, tackling economic inequality Um, and that providing a basis for coalition. Tony has written about how Britain did enter Europe in the early 1970s but it also retained its worldwide Anglophone or Imperial community. Membership of the English-speaking family of nations, very close ties with America on foreign policy. The Commonwealth still exists, of course. The relationship with countries like Australia where we can go and beat them in the cricket and so on they invented it we taught them how to play it etc do you mind me saying that Dominic is that no, I agree. you agree thank you we don't always win however um, but we like that sort of friendly rivalry. We, we, we sort of have a you know they sent us away as convicts and, and uh, we made good you know um, that sort of friendly historical Commonwealth rivalry um, and that indeed was one of the reasons that the French president de Gaulle in the 60s, um, didn't allow Britain's earlier attempts to join the European economic community because it it couldn't be both American and European, he argued. And after the Suez foreign policy crisis in 1956, um, when the British um, Prime Minister at the time made a, a, a decision which was not supported in Washington, it was felt that the UK must never again find itself on the wrong side of an argument with Washington. And it's it's certainly been the case that Britain has followed America into all the wars since, including, as we've already mentioned, Tony Blair, there's Tony Blair there, um, invading Iraq. This sense that Britain was more transatlantic, more American, more more in common with their English-speaking cousins in America, or offspring, um, partially, than with continental Europe, is part of the story. But... Is it partly that? Is it wanting to be distinct, part of the English speaking family of nations? Uh, or is it chauvinism? Is it racism? Yut wrote back in, in uh, his book in 2005 that he criticises Blair for not standing up to prejudice against immigrants. And he points out that at that time, a new Labor government, which had an overwhelming parliamentary majority, nearly 11 million voters, at the 2001 election, Um, failed to tackle the propaganda from a neo-fascist clique which only had 48,000 voters at that time. So what he's saying is that Blair could have done more with his personal standing, his knowledge, his education, his persuasive abilities to tackle ignorance and hostility towards immigrants and refugees and xenophobia about Europe um, and inaccuracies, but he didn't. He didn't use that popularity effectively. And the Murdoch Press has played a significant role in this. Rupert Murdoch uh, argue, has been described as the most consequential Australian ever born. Um, he's 90, about, um, and he's a very dominant international media proprietor. And before he became so big in America, he spent a lot of time in London, in Britain in the 80s and 90s, building up his power, strong support of Margaret Thatcher. But part of his tabloid um, papers approach was to always bag criticise the European Union. Always say nasty things about the European Union. Um, And we know a bit about the sort of person Rupert Murdoch is and and the sort of newspapers he writes. That was revealed when the News of the World had to close a few years ago because of the scandal over the fact that a a missing schoolgirl had been murdered. Um, Its gutter, journalists so-called, had hacked into her phone giving hope to her family that she was still alive so that ended that newspaper, but similar things are done by the Murdoch Press still. Here's some examples that, um, how how the Murdoch Press uh, reported the European Union. They they put out completely false reports saying the European Union is going to ban the British Army, ban Scottish kilts, ban pints of beer because of metric requirements. Uh, they're gonna take the bends out of bananas because they're the one nice and straight. Um, no charity shops, no Christian teachers. Um, Totally over-regulating Britain with petty red tape. Now, these things are uh, manifestly untrue, but if they're reported in in the papers, then many people might believe them. And it's argued that uh, it's a bit like the effect on a family of having a screaming brat. The family might not break up, but ordinary life becomes impossible. That's Nick Davies writing there. These are the things which lay behind the build-up to the referendum. Um, One of the classic examples of um, tabloid Murdoch press was when Thatcher was getting more and more critical of Europe in the 1980s, the person who was actually very important in leading the European Union to more social democratic type policies was a a French politician called Jacques Delors. Jacques Delors came and spoke to the Trade Union Congress. In Britain he was cheered. Unionists who had formerly been sceptical of the European Union cheered him when he said, We will give you social chapter protections for your organisations and we will fight for the minimum wage. And Thatcher was Prime Minister, she was appalled by this. So when she said something critical of Jacques Delors, the headline on the front page of the tabloid Murdoch paper, which probably the sun, says, Up yours Delors Charming, isn't that? No, really poetry, uh, intellectual rigour and constructive public policy reporting there from the media. I'm being sarcastic. Um, Alright, so that's the the forces behind the referendum. What happened after? Well, two years of negotiation. It didn't look like anything was ever going to get through. Um, Theresa May came and went. Uh, In the process, Britain's House of Commons twice rejected, several times rejected the Brexit deal by large majorities. Some were voting against the deal that Theresa May negotiated because they thought it was giving up too much to Europe. Others were voting against it for other reasons. The point is that more than a third of her own party's MPs, the Conservative Party MPs, joined the Labour opposition and the Liberal Democrats, another opposition, smaller party, in voting against that Brexit deal, even though they voted to confirm their confidence in her government. So she stayed on as Prime Minister, but they wouldn't agree with the details of her deal. Then another attempt was made... um, with additional documents on the Northern Irish backstop question, the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland post-Brexit. That did slightly better. The previous (coughs) deal was rejected by a majority of 230, the next one by a majority of 149. But it was clear that Theresa May was not going to deliver a deal which got through the parliament. What happened then was that Boris Johnson became the leader. He supplanted her in July 2019 and then... Just before Christmas 2019, Boris Johnson, there he is, um, defeated Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party convincingly at a general election, and that was then seen as sufficient mandate for Boris Johnson to push through a, a Brexit deal. And again, in that election, the Labor Party lost votes in the north of England. Working class, heartland seats, bricks in what had been called the Red Wall fell. The Red Wall, if you go back to the map, British Labor even in past bad elections, had always felt, even if it got smashed in the south of England, there was a red wall in the north that would protect it from these Tories knocking it down. Well, the red wall came crumbling down. Not completely, but a lot of bricks came out of it. And that's been led to much soul-searching among Labour thinkers about what British Labour should do next. Footnote 12 there, there's a few URL links to... Deborah Mattinson's book on Red Wall Voters, The Northern Question. You can follow if you're interested in that. Britain, therefore, left the EU on 31st January 2020, but it's still in transition until the end of this year, Um, during which time some EU rules will still be followed. So we may not have seen the full actual effects of Brexit yet. Both sides continue to debate, uh, negotiate rather their future economic relationship subsidies, taxes, state aid, workers' rights, fishing is still a contentious point. And then there's the problem of Scotland. England, and probably Wales, are happy to be out of the EU. Um, Scotland is not. And Scotland, one of the things Blair did do, positive things, and he did do some positive things, um, as Prime Minister, uh, was to, well, I think it's positive, devolve government to give a Scottish parliament. Um, And Scotland... Um, not only looks different on the referendum map, as you can see by the gold there, but also neither Conservative nor Labour win seats in Scotland anymore at general elections. They're won by the Scottish Nationalist Party. So Scotland has a sense of itself as an independent nation now, um, and it doesn't want to be out of the EU. It wants to be in it. Scotland also claims the Scottish uh, leaders claim that the North Sea oil that uh, on its on the British side of uh, the North Sea, the other side is Norwegian, um, actually belongs to Scotland, not England. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they stake a claim for that, because that's got a lot of money. Um, so Scotland, uh, at the same time as Britain, or should I say England and Wales, um, is trying to finalise the post-Brexit world, it has an increasing, the so-called United Kingdom has an increasingly fraught relationship with Scotland. And the northern-southern Ireland border um, remains thorny. So it is conceivable that the United Kingdom could further fragment. Um, it's conceivable, it is conceivable, in the, in the foreseeable future, your lifetime certainly, that Scotland could become independent country and not be part of the United Kingdom and that Northern Ireland could be reunited with Southern Ireland. And so the United Kingdom would actually be England and Wales two countries, not four. Uh, and there's a lot of criticism that the, the the border question in Northern Ireland hasn't been settled decisively. And that is a problem because for decades, and we'll look at the history of that more next week, there was a lot of bloodshed in Northern Ireland, the so-called troubles, troubles. so many lives lost, bombings, um, finally seem to have reached a, tree, a truce in the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, which is another achievement of Tony Blair's government. Um, and yet a hard Brexit, as it's called, repudiates one of the cornerstones of the Good Friday Agreement. That is uh, that there's not a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So we'll look at that more next week. But Angela Merkel just Angela Merkel to quote her again, described the economic danger for Britain of becoming what she described as a Singapore on the Thames. She said that in response to one of Boris Johnson's Brexit envoys trying to ditch the UK's commitment to stay aligned to EU social and environmental standards. What does she mean by Singapore on the Thames? We know Singapore is a country near Australia. The idea of a small country with different rules from others around it uh, and trying to get economic advantage. Singapore's been very economically successful, but it's not a very democratic country. It's been an authoritarian economic approach. So a pointed, a pointed comment there from Angela Merkel. I'm sure that went down well with the, the Murdoch press, didn't it? Yeah. Um, bloody German accusers of being a Singapore on the Thames. Um, we shall see. But he won a majority. Labor has failed to win elections for a long time in Britain and it failed to take its own supporters with it. In a democracy, the people are always right, it's sometimes said. He won a clear majority. Brexit is happening. But what does it mean for the long term? Jeremy Corbyn has gone as Labour leader now. He's been replaced by a new leader, Keir Stemmer. You can see how you can look up to see how he's traveling. We know that Britain is not going well with the COVID. We saw that in, in week one with the figures. Robert Saunders, as a British historian, argues that for a whole generation of politicians after nineteen forty five, the challenge was to adapt to the contraction of British power, the the diminution of the global empire. Joining the European community was a way of responding to that. Uh, It may not have been a response that everyone, like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg agreed with, but it was a response. The decision to leave the European Union is not, in his view, this historian's view, a credible response because it's basically saying nothing has changed. Britain can go it alone again in this modern, interconnected, globalised world. And where's the strategy? What does it mean for trade? What does it mean for the advantages of travel, quick, free travel between Britain and the continent? What does it mean for, I'm sure, uh, not just voters in Hampstead like access to um, cheap champagne and good grog from France uh, or good German goods readily, quickly available without tariff barriers and so on. Uh, There may be more pain for Britain from Brexit to become evident we're seeing it happen in real time. Scotland wants compensation for Brexit and a second referendum. Go away, this is supposed to be new technology telling me to do something, sorry. Um, I'll raise that with my supervisor Um, and the union. Now, there is a free trade agreement reached to try and have the arrangement. So there's still free trade Uh, that should protect trade, but there may be more costs and paperwork including customs declarations and border checks, slower passage through airports, that sort of thing, um, in the complexity of this new arrangement. And so, ironically, for people promising an end to red tape, they might end up imposing more. Well, we'll see. The services sector makes up 80% of the British economy. Still does not have the detailed rules for how it should do business with the EU. Given that, and given how badly the UK has performed in terms of the death rates of its citizens from covid Compared to the continent, I think it is clear that Britain's European question is still vexed and problematic. And I refer you to a Social Europe article on that question, which you can follow. And in relation to COVID, just to finish up the lecture part, Boris Johnson has been out there saying proudly that the, the world, a world-leading vaccine was developed by Oxford University, a British university. And that's true, and he's entitled to be proud about that, and Britain's entitled to be proud of many of its achievements, including in science. I always found it interesting, for example, that the person who found the relevance of DNA and its applicability in crime cases, to solve crime criminal cases, I think it was about 1984, was was an academic from Birmingham, it wasn't someone from America, it wasn't someone in the FBI. It was an academic plotting away in doing research I'm sure there's some great British researchers at Oxford who have contributed to the vaccine, but I'm also sure, I know for a fact that Oxford University, like all universities, doesn't want to cut itself off from the rest of the world. It wants international collaboration. And I'm sure that the Oxford vaccine is the product of global cooperation with input from people from many parts of the world, including Australians, including continental Europeans, Africans, Asians, and so on. And that's arguably the way it should be. There is a, a generational gap in views of Brexit. Younger people are much more likely to want to stay in the European Union. Older people much more likely to vote leave. So, that's the end of the lecture. I shall say farewell to our cloud students and you, you can join me in our in our Tuesday online seminars, cloud students. Um, until then, good afternoon. Oh, good, good late morning, I should say. 11.49 here in Geelong. Weather report, drizzly. Um... One minute to go. So, um, uh, more more problems in Parliament House, Canberra. Of course, we can't cover that today. Right. Stop. Yes. Stop recording. Thank you. Over. Thank you. Right. Okay.